BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, California has never had a female governor. But in 2026, at least two high-profile women plan to run. One of them is here today with us. She's an expert in state finances and most recently served as state controller after a long stint on the state's tax board. Betty Yi is here with us in studio, the daughter of Chinese immigrants. She started crunching numbers as a kid at her family business, and she spent years overseeing state finances. Now she wants to be in charge of spending that money. We're going to chat with Yi shortly about her run for governor and current position as vice chair of the state Democratic Democratic Party. But first, Scott, it's been, I would say, a little bit of a quiet August. I mean, in California, we're not even going to talk about Trump and the national news. Or Maui, for that (laughs) matter. Or Maui, which is horrific. But, but yeah, politically it has politically, been, yeah, it's yeah. been, you know, it's the dog digs of summer. As I'm they not say. complaining, honestly, but we, we, we got to talk about something. We got to talk about so, something. There, there's some stuff. Yeah. So, um, in his continuing quest to not run for president, but burnish his national credentials, <laughs> our fair governor has, um, as you may recall, introduced a constitutional amendment, not for the state, but for the U.S. Constitution. This would enshrine gun control into the state constitution. And um, this week we saw state lawmakers actually introduce that the first step in a very, very long, long and somewhat <laughs> unlikely <laughs> yeah, process. process. Yeah, it would do three things. It would uh, raise the age to 21 to purchase a gun, it would ban assault weapons, and it would require uh, you know mandatory background checks. Things and waiting all, periods, yeah. Yeah, waiting periods. Things that all poll very well, certainly mm-hmm. in California, but really nationwide, but which have not you know been able to get any movement on really since the assault weapons ban uh, that Dianne Feinstein kind of muscled through the Senate and through Congress expired. Uh, and so there's a lot of frustration on the part of Newsom and many uh, with the level of gun violence and the inability to really do that much about the supply of guns uh, and guns that kill a lot of people in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And I think in part, I mean, this is, you know, part of a long story of Democrats pushing back against the NRA and other, you know, gun rights groups. But it also really comes, I think, in part because of U.S. Supreme Court decisions and lower court decisions of recent years that have really undercut not just California, but other blue states like New York's 
own laws. I mean, you said it has three parts. There's actually a fourth part I found interesting, which is it would essentially affirm the rights of cities and states to pass even further gun control, which is something, you know, that the court has really undermined, in particular with last year's Bruin decision. I mean, this was a decision that we're even seeing lower courts really push back on because in it, Clarence Thomas wrote that essentially we need to take into account the historical context of any gun law. And it's like these judges are like, well, how do we know what was sort of normal in the 18th century when we're yeah. talking about well, Clarence muskets. Thomas has fi- figured it out. So, uh, you know, I'm sure they can he could teach them. But no, you know, this is obviously something that is, as you said, uh, it becomes a national story if it passes. And, uh, would, you know, we'd have to get a lot of other states, 33 total states, to actually call for a convention, a constitutional convention, which has a lot of risks. You know, Newsom thinks that he can focus this in on the gun issue, but there's a lot of concern, uh, including among people like Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, the uh, law school dean at, at Berkeley saying you can't control it. And once you open that uh, box, you could be dealing with LGBTQ rights, abortion, and any number of other hot button issues, which, you know, would potentially be on on the docket, you know, if you're going to start talking yeah. about those things. Absolutely. Well, another uh, story that we continue to follow is the the past and future, really, of U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, um, you know, her longtime husband, Dick Blum, passed away about a year or so, a year or two ago. And um, Scott, you've been following. There's now a kind of fight over his estate and the trustees that were put in charge here. Yeah. Tell us why this matters, though, to average people. I mean, well, it's just another sad chapter, unfortunately, in the, you know, final years of Dianne Feinstein. She's had such a, you know, storied career, uh, but we've seen the cognitive declines, evidence evidence of that. She was very sick. She had shingles. And now we've got this dispute between really her, her, but her daughter, Catherine, her only daughter, and the four daughters of Dick Blum, who, you know, this sometimes happens with blended families if you don't have clear <laughs> or instructions. Or non-blended families, Or not, but especially when you have competing interests, you know, right. within one family. And, um, you know, Catherine Feinstein and through the attorneys uh, say that uh, the trust has not been properly funding the marital trust. They have not been uh, responding to requests for funding to help pay for Feinstein's medical bills. Mm-hmm. One thing that confuses me, I mean, it's just a big mess, you know, and they're also alleging, by the way, financial elder abuse. Um, and so, but, you know, Diane Feinstein was quite wealthy on her own, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't quite understand entirely. I mean, apart from this, you know, why it is that, you know, she needs that, his, you know, money from that trust to pay for her medical bills. But clearly there's a lot at stake because the, the daughters of Blum want to just kind of drag this out as long as possible because once Feinstein goes, you know, all of his money goes to them. And I think that's clearly part of it. Yeah, I think there's also sort of bringing it back to like her as a public official uh, interesting questions this raises, and we may never know the answers about her financial situation and how much that has impacted her ability to say travel back and forth between California and D.C. I think a lot of us, when she was having that bout of shingles, were a little confused about why somebody who, quite frankly, is as wealthy or has been as her, wouldn't just charter their own jet. Yeah. Why? Are, why is she flying commercial? Why is the stairs in her condo in D.C. an issue? And yeah. maybe this answers some of those yeah. questions that maybe there isn't as many resources available to her as we all assume. Right. And some of those resources were available when Dick Blum was alive. He had a plane right. which she presumably used. The other thing is, you know, her daughter, Catherine Feinstein, former judge, who's now retired, uh, has been given durable power of attorney over her legal and financial issues. And, you know, it does raise a question of just how 
able is she to do her job as senator if mm. she needs to have someone step in for her on these issues? That, you know, in and of itself does not say she can't be, you know, be the senator and do, and do a job. But we've seen, you know, in, in a number of different ways, her decline. And it's, it's just sad because it's, uh, it, I'm sure it's not what she would have hoped for for her final years in office. And I think you and I have also, you know, talked to a lot of people who are close to the senator and have been historically and know that I think there's been some disagreement between herself and her daughter about whether she could, should continue her job in yeah. D.C. That may also explain why Catherine Feinstein has not been as visible by her mom's side as other folks, including Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who she's, I think is kind of another daughter to the senator and yeah. has been really assisting her. A lot of people have tried to get her to not run, you know, back in 2018 and then to even to step step aside early. But uh, she just really refused to do that. Well, we do wish her the best and uh, we will be watching this case. Um, We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by former state controller and 2026 gubernatorial hopeful Betty Yee. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we are excited to welcome Betty Yee. She has served on the State Board of Equalization as state controller and is now vice chair of the state Democratic Party and a candidate for governor in 2026. Betty Yee, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you. Good Good to to be with you both. Yes. Great to have you. Um, So we want to start at the beginning as we often do. I know you were raised in San Francisco on the west side and your parents had a business there. Tell us about them and your family. I think you're one of four siblings? Six. Six? Well, there's oh six of us. Gosh. Well, wow. yes, I have uh, five siblings. <laughs> wow. So I am the second oldest of uh, six children born to Chinese immigrants. My father came to the United States when he was 14 years old, oh. um, essentially kicked out by his family in China, southern, um, southeastern part of China, uh, in a prearranged marriage to my mother, um, wow. and was urged to go find a better life um, that he could have to provide for his future bride and family. How did um, they so, end up in San Francisco? So my father came over. Uh, he was sponsored. My then godfather was already here in San Francisco, so he uh, essentially sponsored my father to come to San Francisco. Uh, shortly after his arrival, he apprenticed in the laundry business in San Francisco Chinatown and uh, did that for quite a while. But his path to citizenship uh, was um, naturalization um, after his service in World War II oh. in the United States Army. A uh, very common path for immigrants yeah. during that time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, eventually he opened up his own laundry and dry cleaning business, um, brought my mother here the year before I was born. And uh, so I do have uh, four sisters and one brother. Wow. And so this was... Um a laundromat on the west side, and I know you 
helped them. I, I think all of you guys did, but it sounds like your affinity for numbers came early through that that uh, experience. Absolutely. Well, you know, the best employees of a family business are the kids, right? And so um, I think each of us had a had a role. Uh, I was particularly facile with numbers, and so my father, I, I remember at the end of every week, we'd figure out, you know, what our bills were. He'd hand me all the receipts of the week in a cigar box, and I had to kind of figure out how much money we had. Uh, but I also um, began to negotiate with vendors when uh, I was at a young age, probably yeah. about seven or eight years old, uh, to get a good price on supplies that we needed. And the banking, um, And at the end of the year, um, another cigar box approached me with um, tax forms, and they were Board of <laughs> Equalization forms. I had no idea what they were, <laughs> that followed the instructions, uh, filed them, and who knew decades later I'd become a member of the board hearing tax appeals. <laughs> and hopefully not dealing with cigar boxes. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Receipts at that point. No. Um, but you got into politics in a way when you were quite young, 13 years old. Yes. Uh, and there was an issue in your neighborhood about busing. Yes. Your younger younger sister was going to be bused under a policy that was being proposed. And you stood up at the school district hearing to advocate against busing. Tell us how you got to that microphone. Absolutely. I was 13 years old at the time. And as I always uh, recall this story, I'm happy I'm sitting down because I remember the moment. I was so nervous. I had never spoken publicly before. Uh, but the four Chinese American families who all were small business owners in the neighborhood came to my father and said, we would like your daughter to attend the town hall meeting of the school board, which was at the elementary school, two blocks away, walking distance from my family's business, and to essentially make a statement um, about the busing program, um, which essentially says, we are small business owners. Uh, our children are able to walk to school uh, today. If anything should happen to them, uh, if they're bused across the city, we would have to shut down our business. Uh, we'd lose a day of livelihood. It would take us well over two hours to be on public transportation to pick up our children and bring them home. And we, none of us drive. And so we don't impose the goals of the busing program, but could we use that money just to improve the quality of all of the schools in San Francisco? And so I made that statement. I got up, made that statement, and uh, went back to my seat in the auditorium. And and of course, we know that the busing program lasted the better part of the next three decades. Right. Uh, but everything was fine. Nothing uh, happened to my sister and my siblings uh, after her. But it was um, an ex it was a moment that just stayed with me. Yeah. Well, this was life. over desegregation, right? I mean, yes, the idea exactly. was to make schools more, both more, more equitable and more yes. diverse. Um, and this is an issue that continues this this debate. I'm curious, like as a staunch member of the Democratic yes. Party. Um, do you see the issue any differently now than you did as a kid at 13? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm a product of San Francisco public school, so I went to law high school. And I always thought, even as I was growing up and to this day, why were we never just trying to create more Lowell High Schools, you know, mm -hmm. just throughout the city? You know, we've got this crazy competitive process, you know, for everyone to get into the you know, one of the top college prep schools. But yet, you know, we could have at the same time just um, created more uh, of those to um, have more opportunities for, for students. Um, you know, I would say, um, you know, the busing program... Uh, I mean, at that time, it was about a family hardship. I personally right. support busing programs. Um, I think the earlier we can have young people just be able to understand, you know, the diversity of, uh, you know, our society and to be able to uh, just learn and play and grow with them is, is a beautiful thing. And I think probably uh, would deepen just so much of the understanding across communities that is so lacking today. I'm curious, you know, sometimes when you have these big cultural issues come to the fore, I'm thinking about same-sex marriage, you yeah. know, and the opponent said, you know, if we let gay couples marry, the sky's going to fall, it's going to ruin this, that, and the other thing. And lo and behold, it didn't. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, so 
did the things that you said when you stood up that day come to pass in terms of your family? Did they have to close the business? Did they, you know, did, or, you know, was that maybe a little easier, turned out to be a little easier than you thought? It turned out to be easier. I mean, I think a lot of it was just the unknown. And um, really, when you have the convenience of an elementary school two blocks away, you know, walking distance. I mean, my younger sister, I remember, actually got lost walking home from school one day. And so <laughs> what, what could happen possibly when she's across the city? So, so did uh, she it, go to Visitation Valley? She did. Ultimately? She oh, did. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, interesting. So you, I mean, you say that that was kind of a political awakening for you. You go on to uh, UC Berkeley for undergrad, then Golden Gate University. But I know your college student uh, experience was kind of interrupted in a way when your father became ill. Yes. Talk about that. And like, how? What, what did that change? It must have been a very different experience for you than a lot of your peers at that time. Uh, definitely. And even when I was going to Berkeley, I commuted every day. Okay. I, I worked to essentially put myself through school. And, uh, you know, what was really unfortunate. My father became ill with uh, kidney failure when I was a junior at Cal, and I had to move back home. Um, so each of us, the siblings, uh, took on various responsibilities. Um, a couple of my sisters kept the business going with my mother. Uh, I was responsible for taking him to dialysis three times a week at UCSF, and um, and we all coordinated his therapies. But uh, he ended up living for another five years before he passed away, but fairly young, in yeah. his um, early 60s. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> this created a, a situation where my mother decided to continue in the business and eventually shut it down. I know one of my sisters wanted to take it over and she just was adamant, you know, my father and I did not sacrifice to have you all be able to get to college and for you to run the laundry and dry cleaning business after. <laughs> Very so, immigrant so, right, mom. But what changed about all of that was just really having to navigate um, so many things from my father's health care, uh, understanding, you know, all of the, the health benefits, social security, disability, um, looking at how to be an advocate in terms of just um, being sure that uh, his was the best that he could get. And also uh, understanding that, you know, in terms of uh, just keeping the business going, um, we came to a point of where, you know, people weren't like really coming to dry cleaners uh, a lot anymore. And so, um, and really seeing kind of the nature of the business uh, declining over time as well. And he was known, by the way, as finishing men's shirts. So um, when he wasn't there to finish men's shirts anymore, I think that, you know, there was uh, something that uh, just kind of uh, went by the wayside without his talent still in place. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Betty Yee, former state controller who is now working with the Cal Democratic Party running for governor in 2026. You know, you're talking about your dad's health problems. And one of your early jobs was in public health in Santa Cruz County. And you got involved with HIV AIDS. Uh, How did you make that pivot? Sure. Uh, After graduate school at Golden Gate University, I really wanted to be in a smaller community to look and see whether I could have more impact. And I was very um, attracted to uh, women's health issues. And Santa Cruz County, uh, particularly Santa Cruz City, had a very strong women's health collective. So I moved down there and did a lot of work uh, with them. Um, And the women's committee was quite integrated to where we dealt with issues of um, physical health, um, certainly public health, um, domestic violence, mental health. All of that was uh, just one really um, integrated community of uh, service providers. Uh, one of the members of the Board of Supervisors always um, selected his uh, member of the County Public Health Commission from the Women's Health Community. So I was selected by then Supervisor Gary Patton to sit on the uh, Public Health Commission. I believe we were the only, we're the first county to write uh, an anti-smoking or 
maintenance for the unincorporated areas of the county. This was back in the in the uh, mid 1980s, and uh, also uh, when the HIV uh, AIDS epidemic broke, um, we really were at a loss about uh, what to do. We didn't know anything about treatment at the time, but certainly wanted to get information out to as many communities as possible. And I was tasked to uh, go to Sacramento and bring home some public health dollars uh, for the county uh, for HIV AIDS uh, purposes. I went to Sacramento um, as a Senate fellow and uh, did my fellowship with the Senate Health and Human Services Committee and was appalled at what I saw in terms of very, actually no women, and very few, uh, I can count on less than one hand, um, staff of uh, from our diverse communities who were advising our legislators about funding for, for uh, health issues. And so I decided I wanted to stay after my fellowship and change that. And you never left, kind of. Kind <laughs> I know of, you right. lived in the Bay Area. But I, I do wonder, I mean, you talk about the lack of diversity there. I mean, that's even more so, I would imagine, in the finance yes. sort of sector of public policy. Yes. So... You end up working for both the legislature on fiscal policy and then Governor Gray Davis. Um, I mean, obviously that played to your strengths, but were you also attracted by the fact that you could kind of be a trailblazer in those places? Um, I would say uh, yes, uh, to some extent, but I also wanted to change the landscape. So I'm happy to say today it looks very, very different. Um, I think Californians would be pleased to hear that their communities are well represented, not just in their elected officials, but certainly among the staff who are advising our electeds. You did work for Governor Gray Davis, uh, who of course was recalled, replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, He was, had been state controller uh, before that and, you know, before he was lieutenant governor. Did he uh, advise you? Did you ask him about running she- for uh, <laughs> for a secretary, for uh, state controller? What did you, where are you going to say? I, I was going to say, or did he take your advice at all? <laughs> That's a whole other yeah, question. Well, Start that with Scott's question. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, let me say I have a, a very um, deep fondness for, for Governor Davis, um, who I believe when history um, looks back at his tenure as governor, will see that we did some really wonderful things for, for the state of California. You know, for uh, Governor Davis, um, I did seek his advice in terms of controller. Um, you know, my discipline's been in finance, and so he uh, was very encouraging, um, certainly thought being state controller was one of the best uh, statewide offices because you really had the ability to um, elevate the public's trust and confidence in their government. You know, this is a fiscal watchdog, financial watchdog uh, position. So to the extent that you do that job well and give the public a sense that somebody's, you know, watching over our finances and, and our uh, fiscal house, uh, that just has, um, you know, a really good connection with, uh, with the public generally. I mean, on the other hand, I kind of alluded to this, but, you know, he was recalled, I think, largely because of the energy crisis. But I think in hindsight, there's a lot of criticisms of the way he oversaw the budget. There's a sense that he overpromised to unions. Um, you know, Schwarzenegger inherited a really dismal budget deficit. Right. Was he listening to you? Like, what, what What? did he do differently than what you were advising? You know, I think it's always, um, you know, the, the devil's in the details with uh, respect to how budgets put together. Um, look, there was a lot of legislative pressure. Um, prior to Governor Davis, we had, um, you know, Governor Pete Wilson. Right. So a lot of pent-up frustration in terms of what some of the constituencies were not able to get during those years uh, with Governor Wilson in office. And so I think Governor Davis, you know, did the best he could relative to negotiations as his budget director and advisor. 
I always say fiscal prudence is never an unpopular thing. So, you know, always reminding him that, you know, this is a good place to be. But at the end of the day, to get a budget, these were protracted budgets. You remember yes. during those years, we didn't have a budget. When um, you needed a two-thirds, it was right. a much different It was process. until September, until the fall before we had a budget. Well, and full disclosure, I was working for him when right. he was the state controller right. at that time, and they were issuing IOUs. That's right. And he and Wilson did not get along. No. And I think, you know, now that I can say this now, he was, I think, using that to elevate himself, that conflict. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what did you learn observing that in terms of how different constitutional officers get together or should get along or not? I wish um, there could be more collaboration, frankly. Um, we are independently elected constitutional offices, but I certainly view the role of the controller as being very pivotal to just the uh, entire operation of the state. Uh, we're a high production office. We have the ability to look out at um, just any kind of economic risks that could be uh, hitting California, um, certainly from a cash flow perspective when we might run into trouble. So, um, And look, I was proactive, always advised you know, the executive branch, the governor's office, whenever we saw anything. Uh, but I think there could have been more collaboration because, um, you know, we are the ones that really understand how to, you know, just push money out the door. And mm-hmm. uh, and certainly, you know, when the pandemic hit, uh, I think there was a, a bit more collaboration, but I, it could have been much deeper. Well, you mentioned pushing money out the door. As I said at the top, you're running for governor. You want to pick how to spend that money. Yes. Um, when you ran for controller, you talked a lot about tax reform and the idea that we do need to at least tweak our system so that it's less reliant on the top 1%. Of course, that means the other 99% probably would pay more. Talk about your vision for the state. If you do become governor, um, what would you know, what would you like to see done understanding you won't be empress, but you know, right. you could right. try. <laughs> no, no. And the tax system is... I mean, we, we, we have it. We're living with it. I will say the one reform that has really helped us tremendously is the voter approval of a rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, if we didn't have that, um, the beginning of the um, pandemic, we probably would have had to do some pretty expensive borrowing. So uh, we're very grateful for the voters' wisdom in that. Uh, but also, when you look at other states in terms of um, you know just fiscal stability, I think the mix of taxes is really important. Um, you know, Obviously, we have Prop 13, which capped the local property tax. Um, but the mix from the perspective that um, you know, when you have such reliance on upper income earners uh, who, uh, and there's been a lot of stories about many of them leaving California, um, but we're also still getting new people coming into California. So from a tax perspective, um, close to being a wash, but it's, I, I think the more that we see affordability issues here, we are going to see more Californians leaving. Uh, so sales tax, we've talked a lot about uh, being one of the few large states that does not tax services. Um, and that is real money. I mean, that is money that can actually come in on a, on a pretty uh, regular basis. Um, example of that, you go take your car in for repair, you pay for the parts, a tax on the parts, but not on the service. Mm-hmm. And that could generate, you know, quite quite a quite a chunk of change. Although a lot of the states I would guess that have that tax don't have other tax. Like some states don't have income, income tax, tax right. for example, right. or have lower right. sales tax. So right. I mean you're talking about adding yet more tax on a you know, somewhat high tax burden state. Well, but it's also about then what you do on the spending side too. But but relative to just kind of the tax sources and the mix of taxes, I think that it actually could uh, result in hopefully a decrease in some tax rates on the income tax side um, so that we can uh, have the sales tax really be more reflective of, you know, what's really happening in the economy. You know, on the spending side, I would say, um, look, I was 
controller, did audits, um, you know, uncovered in my, over my eight years uh, about $7.3 billion of um, public funds that were uh, directed to unallowed uses, and there's more there had we had more time and resources to uncover that. There's always waste. It's not fraud. It's just um, it's part of the system, mm-hmm. and so we have to root that out. Um, and and uh, we also know that um, from a tax perspective that um, there are those who um, are going to continue to not be compliant, and so uh, to the extent that we can add you know more resources to have uh, to work with taxpayers to become compliant, that is uh, to the good for the long term. Well, you're running in 2026, and before then, we have just this little election next yes. year. Um, I'm curious, you know, the the California Democratic Party is seen as to the left of even some Democrats in California. How do you see kind of approaching that? Do you think there needs to be any change in the way that the party operates? Um, and 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 how are you thinking that heading into this election year? Yes, no, I think there has been a change in how the party operates. So we have invested in what we call uh, year-round organizing. So we are engaging Democrats, the 10 million plus Democrats in the state uh, year round now instead of just uh, months ahead of an election. And the reason we do that is because we actually get informed uh, by the voters and Democrats about what's top of mind for them. That helps us then begin to um, you know, message how uh, we are going to have our endorsed candidates pay attention to these issues. And, and so that has been really, I think, a game changer, that this organizing isn't around an election, it's around being uh, able to really live the values of being Democrats in California. And and so whether it's healthcare, whether it's housing affordability, you know, whatever the issue is, we are hearing um, pretty common themes across all of California, but in certain areas of California, even more dire uh, issues around water and, you know, other uh, top of mind issues. We noted at the top that California's never had a female governor like so many states have had. Um, there's Eleni Kunalakis, the lieutenant governor, also running. There'll be plenty of time to debate the differences. But why do you think there hasn't been a woman governor in California? What difference would it make to have one? No, I, it's as with uh, any office, including governor, uh, you know, women, and this really speaks to, you know, how women professionally have not had the deep networks. Um, you know, these are um, races that cost tens of billions, millions of dollars, and so to have the deep networks to be able to fundraise to be viable uh, as a candidate statewide, I think, has been definitely a barrier. Uh, but I also think um, that has changed. Um, we are um, now running with a sense of maturity in terms of you know those networks being. Uh, much more robust. Um, I also think that um, given the issues of the day, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, reproductive rights and just so many of these uh, critical social issues that, you know, the women's voice is really important. And so, uh, and when you look at the electorate, over half are women. And so um, I think it's uh, high time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We are going to leave it there. That is former controller and 2026 governor candidate, Betty E. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That will do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. Guy Marzarati is our producer. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time.
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.